Now, that was a weird day. I'm walking around Dublin uh, carrying a uh, radio and uh, listening to Bloom's thoughts. Uh, each spot I'm going to, I'm running into other people carrying such radios. And then at three o'clock, uh, a theatrical group did all the uh, events that occurred at three o'clock in Dublin in 1904. And that's the chapter where Joyce emphasizes synchronicity most. He's got 19 events going on in 19 parts of Dublin intercut with each other and all connected in weird Jungian ways. And they had actors all over Dublin doing these 19 scenes simultaneously. And people walking around with radios, with the scene being read by other actors. And it was like you, Dublin had turned into Ulysses. And you didn't know whether you were in 1982 or 1904, or what was Joyce and what was reality. <laughs> that was a great day. <laughs> Welcome to the Hilaritas Podcast, brought to you by Hilaritas Press. I am your host, Mike Gathers. Join us as we explore the world of iconic writer Robert Anton Wilson and the people and ideas who influenced him. Visit us at hilaritaspress.com slash podcasts for show notes, links, and past episodes. In our last episode, Kurt Prisbilla took time to chat with us about Bucky Fuller. And now we speak with Loic Wright. PhD candidate in 20th century Irish fiction and culture, and Irish Research Council scholar about Irish novelist, short story writer, poet, and literary critic James Joyce. With this episode, we conclude our eight episode series on the major influences in the life of Bob as he journeys through Chapel Perilous, as outlined in the book Cosmic Trigger. We started our journey with General Semantics and Alfred Korzybski. Bob read Science and Sanity over a weekend in high school, introducing him to the consciousness of abstracting and multi-model approaches to reality, and creating some early cracks in Bob the Dogmatic Materialist's foundation, which eventually led Bob the Skeptic to question the very nature of and assumptions built into language and quote-unquote objective reality. Next, we covered Wilhelm Reich and his bioenergetic psychology. Bob the Libertarian had a major awakening experience when the FDA dumped all of Dr. Reich's books, 30 years of scientific research, into a New York City incinerator in 1957 and burned them. Around that time, Bob the Investigator sought treatment from a Reichian therapist where he would have developed first-hand experience with the mind-body connection. In our third episode, we discuss Aldous Huxley, who turned on Bob the Shaman by introducing him to psychedelics, specifically peyote, in 1957, when Bob read a review of Huxley's Heaven and Hell in upstart right-wing publication National Review. Then we discuss Carrie Thornley with writer Adam Go Rightly. Thornley and Wilson started out as pen pals and became close friends and partners in crime before Thornley slipped into the abyss of a chapel perilous of his own creation, threatening to drag Bob the Fool down with him. In episode 5, we touched on the life and times of Dr. Timothy Leary, who showed Bob the Skeptic a strict scientific approach to psychedelic experimentation while later facing government persecution that greatly affected Bob the Libertarian. 
Then in episode six, we dove deep into the life of metaprogrammer John Lilly, who, along with Aleister Crowley, introduced Bob the Experimenter to the art and science of intentional brain change. And from there, we went on to cover Buckminster Fuller, who had a similar non-ordinary experience as Bob the Mystic, and whose optimistic, unorthodox, and relentless nature, laser-focused on raising the quality of living for the planet as a whole, seemed to deeply inspire Bob. And finally, we come to today's episode on James Joyce, whose writing style deeply influenced Bob the Maybe Logician's development of multi-model agnosticism. And with all that said, I'm excited to introduce our guest for this episode, Irish Research Council scholar Loic Wright. All right, Loic, welcome to the Hilaritas podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So we're studying James Joyce today. You're with the James Joyce Cultural Center. Is that right? That's it. Yeah. And do a bit of diverse work for them. So tour guide, marketing, admin, a bit of bit of everything. Okay. And is that in Dublin, I assume? Yeah. So it's in Dublin. It's in the inner city around where James Joyce grew up for some of his life and went to school and then set most of his work. Right. Right. And how did you discover James Joyce? I was in college in undergrad and I was actually avoiding Joyce as much as I could. So I went to UCD, which is very much the school that Joyce ended up going to the university under various busts and plaques and libraries named after him. So I, in my maybe slightly more rebellious phase, decided to avoid the man who haunted the hallways. (laughs) Then one day I was just walking through uh, Dublin City and there was a protest on so my bus was cancelled and I had three euro in my pocket and I found Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man for two ninety nine. so I stayed in town until the buses were back up running and I read it and I was amazed to recognize the street names mm. that I was reading in you know and it began there I guess. So there's something about the book written after the town you're in that really captured you. Absolutely. Also, a lot of the buildings are still there and most of the streets are the same name or look the same in some regard, whether, you know, physically or culturally in some senses. So I was kind of amazed. And I was like, I, I nearly said, geez, I, I found this uh, unheard of writer called James Royce for about half a minute. And then I remembered that he's everywhere. <laughs> right. So James Joyce was a, a huge influence on uh featured writer Robert Anton Wilson, and was wondering maybe if you could walk us through perhaps a thumbnail of his early childhood and the influences, maybe what Dublin was like starting there at the time he was growing up. Yeah, absolutely. So Joyce was born in 1882 in Dublin, and he was born in Rathgar, which was just outside the city centre, and it was a very well-to-do area, very leafy green, a lot of three-storey Georgian houses. And his family circumstances got progressively worse through his father's drinking and gambling. Mm. So the Joyce's moved about 17 times in Dublin by the time Joyce leaves uh, Dublin to study, uh, in quotes, medicine in Paris. And basically he moves from well-to-do seaside towns such as Bray or Black Rock into the North inner city, which was really, abject poverty essentially that he was being plunged into and he moves schools a lot. He went to Clongos, which was a fee-paying Jesuit-run school 
and then got kind of shuffled around into a couple of rougher north inner city schools until one day he's given a, a free ride at Belvedere College, which was another fee-paying Jesuit-run school. And Joyce was an avid reader uh, as a child, didn't always excel academically. He wins a couple of prizes for essay writing and he often spends the money that he wins almost instantly on like a, a night at the theatre or something like that. And he goes abroad then, to, as I mentioned, to study medicine in Paris and he doesn't really take to it in the end. He has to pay the fees up front and this isn't something that he's joyous and money isn't always a particularly fruitful relationship. So he moves back to Dublin when he heard that his mother was dying and he kind of spends a bit of time around Dublin and reviews a couple of books. But he, early enough in his teen years and his early adulthood, had been writing these sketches of Dublin and um, he said Dublin seemed the centre of paralysis. And to answer your question about what Dublin was like, Dublin was still part of the British Empire at this point. It was the second city of the British Empire. And Joyce found it strange. Again, he said to his brother Stanislaus that Dublin has been a capital city for thousands of years. It's the second city of the British Empire. It's nearly three times as big as Venice. It seems strange to me that no artist has given it to the world. And Joyce really attempts to do that then for most of his life and his work. He wants to show that Dublin is, as I mentioned, the centre of paralysis. There's nationalists who don't really do much for nationalist politics so much as grieve the previous generation of nationalist heroes, so to speak. And he's very critical of that whole paralysis in Dublin at the time. He thinks it's not in keeping with the rest of Europe and also the world with modernity and experimentalism. And he rails against that for the most part. It's interesting to me, moving 17 times and kind of going from the suburbs and middle class, as I understood it, to maybe the inner city and poverty, how that gave him a view of so many different aspects of the city. Yeah, his first uh, encounter with a sex worker in the local red light district in Dublin inner city. So a lot of that is the young Stephen, but also these things happen to Joyce. And as you mentioned, kind of getting a feel for the city, but he also gets to see then a lot of different sides to existence in Dublin. That right. He went from very well-to-do seaside towns into squalor, essentially. A lot of those houses in the inner city had been politicians' houses that were now vacant, and 10 families would get crammed into one room mm -hmm. by the new landlords. Joyce really sees both ends of the spectrum in a lot of senses. Gives him a, a broad perspective in which to, to present all these different points of view. Okay, so he's back in Dublin after a, a stint in med school that didn't quite work out. Is that right? That's it, yeah. And he kind of floats around Dublin for a bit. Um, he's approached by a man called George Russell, uh, also known in Dublin at the time as AE, and he was a pioneer of what was the Irish literary revival. So as a little bit of context from the late 1880s uh, into the early 1900s, there was full swing of this Irish literary revival. And it was pioneered by big names like Yeats and, as I mentioned, Russell and Lady Gregory. And the idea was a lot of these artists were looking in two senses to accompany um, political nationalism with a cultural nationalism, but also to combat the prevalent notion of Irish people as being drunk, sentimental, fighting, um, kind of oftentimes apish 
images that were pervading British stage and British media. So there's this whole idea of going back to the old Celtic notion, old Irish folklore to revitalize Irish culture. And Joyce is not particularly interested in it. As I mentioned before, he's more interested in the modernity and the experimentalism of Europe and the continent, essentially. So he's offered um, to write short stories in the Irish homestead, which was George Russell's paper. It was known in Dublin at the time as the pig's paper uh, because it also had a lot of agricultural articles about various agricultural machinery and things like that. So Joyce was somewhat unwilling to have his name attached to it. So when he publishes his first short story, The Sisters, in August of 1905, he publishes it under the name Stephen Daedalus, mm. uh, the name he used in Portrait of the Artist. And he then continues to write more short stories for George Russell until he finally has the bones of what will be Dubliners, which is his uh, collection of short stories, which he publishes in 1914. Okay. But if I understood that, there was an urge to... Uh enhance the image of Dublin and the Irish and and but rather than kind of going back to Celtic folklore he wanted to bring a more modern Yates or Gregory were being too nostalgic and sentimental in fact they would often write about this amazing Irish peasantry and that was the authentic Irish person and a lot of writers after choice as well such as the Irish poet Patrick Kavanagh would have railed against that they said there was nothing amazing about the squalor of rural Ireland either. It was just this kind of rhetorical ideal that they imposed on it. Um, one of the critics at the time, John Eglinton, said Yeats and Gregory made the rural Irish peasant the fetish of unsatisfiable desire. And Joyce saw a lot of this going on and he wrote essays against it called The Day of the Rabblement. He was really against this idea of idealizing and romanticizing Ireland. He saw a lot of the dirty inner city parts. You consider the likes of William Butler Yeats were born to big Anglo-Irish houses. They were ascendancy born and they remained most of their lives in ascendancy houses. And Joyce thought they were fairly far removed from the reality. You started to mention politics a little earlier and I think we got diverted, but was that sort of reflected through the politics as well. You mentioned this paralysis and kind of looking back in time. And yeah, it seems like there's some nostalgia maybe for the way things used to be, but not really a, a forward movement in Joyce. Absolutely. So some of your, I'm sure many of your listeners will know there was the specter of a man called Charles Stuart Parnell who haunts all of Joyce's work. And Parnell was the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party. The idea was they would secure home rule for Ireland. That was self-governance um, rather than from Westminster in the UK. And Parnell was well known at the time and he was often seen as one of those heroes, um, you know, following in the footsteps of Daniel O'Connell who would secure Catholic emancipation, that is new rights for Irish Catholics in Ireland. And as I said, Parnell was known in the, at the time, he allegedly, he and his six party members um, filibustered for 45 hours uninterrupted in Westminster until British politicians finally considered what was the Irish question seriously, that is Irish independence or at least self-governance. And Parnell was then involved in a divorce scandal. He was uh, having an affair um, with a woman called Catherine O'Shea, who was married to another politician. And when 
this broke out, the Catholic bishops denounced Parnell. And obviously Ireland was so heavily Catholic at the time, it split a lot of the country in half, pro-Parnellite and those who denounced him. And one day Parnell stood up in his party chambers and he said, gentlemen, I'm the master of this party, to which his very good friend and colleague, Tim Healy, said, yes, but who's its mistress? And that was kind of seen as the final nail in Parnell's coffin. And he died in 1891, Dubliner said, of a broken heart. And Joyce's father was a staunch Parnellite. He was a very strong supporter of Parnell. And Joyce allegedly, when he was nine years old, wrote a poem called Etu Healy, uh, where he positions Parnell as a Julius Caesar style figure and Tim Healy as the betraying Brutus. And the final lines of the poem allegedly had Parnell clamoring over these inept Irish politicians and Parnell was this soaring eagle. Uh, so even if the poem doesn't survive today, we do know that Joyce must have been a very fun nine-year-old to be around. But his dad allegedly had the poem published and sent to the Pope. So Joyce grew up with this Parnell spectre as well, and it makes its way into the work, especially in Dubliners. There's a short story called Ivy Day in the Committee Room, which is about a series of nationalist politicians doing half a day's work and then drinking the other half of the day away, reminiscing about Parnell. And one of them says, come now, gentlemen, we all respect Parnell now that he's dead and gone. And for Joyce, that's kind of the crux of the argument. No one rushed to his aid in numbers the way he needed when he was being denounced. But now that he was gone, everyone elegized him and mythologized him in a lot of ways that he could have used at the time. And rather than do anything productive now, they were just stuck in these cycles of reminiscence. Right. Okay. So that ties into the politics and the literary revivals and and then, but Joyce was just like, look, folks, this isn't how change happens. Wow. So Dubliners comes out of that. So Dubliners comes out in 1914. He um, finishes the short story, The Dead, which is possibly the most famous short story in the collection. T.S. Eliot famously praised it as the best short story in the English language. And Joyce it's, the Dead is interesting. It's a little change of pace from Joyce because he is sick physically and homesick towards the end of writing Dubliners. And then he starts writing The Dead as something of an elegy to the Dublin, the parts of Dublin he did miss. He does feel that he's been a little too harsh on Dublin in some senses. And The Dead is an interesting story in that it's about a man called Gabriel Conroy and he uh, is a very forward-thinking European man. He wears uh, galoshes on his shoes because apparently that's what they do in Europe. And he goes on cycling holidays to France and Belgium. And he's critiqued a bit in the short story by people who accuse him of not being particularly Irish. He doesn't go to Irish language meetings. He doesn't go to Connemara on his holidays. He goes to Europe. And he's called a West Britain, which is a derogatory term for an Irish person who wants to be British. The story shifts focus then and turns to his wife, Greta, and she remembers a young man called Michael Fury who sang outside her window, or who um, stayed outside her window until he got, he was uh, out in the cold and he died afterwards. And she says he died for her. And Michael Fury is the embodiment of an old Gaelic man. And then we have Gabriel, who's the new continental man. And Greta becomes Ireland, kind of being pulled between these two 
diametrically opposed poles, very much as I mentioned before, Joyce was looking at the revivalists versus the more European continentalists. And this is, again, Joyce is looking at Ireland has a choice at this point. And of course, Joyce's heavily Catholic education is influential throughout his work. Both of the men in Greta's life, Gabriel and Michael, are named after archangels. So Joyce always picks up these things that he's learned and acknowledged and kind of spotted throughout Dublin and puts them in his work. And so Dubliners is released um, after a lot of difficulty. The first uh, copy was allegedly burnt rather than be published over a few obscenity, the potential for obscene language and to be called up on charges and that because publishers could get a lot of trouble over those. And so then he starts working away on a few different projects. He's released a book of poems in 1907. They're middle of the road. He doesn't get too much acclaim for them. He also writes a play, but the main work at the moment is on a portrait of the artist as a young man. And this is, as I mentioned, this semi-autobiographical novel about Stephen Dedalus and his essentially coming of age, learning about Dublin in a colonial city. And it sets up a lot of the themes we'll see in Joyce's famous novel, Ulysses, but also the fact that Ulysses actually has a lot of stories with Stephen Dedalus in it. There is a continuation of that. Can you give us a, a highlight of some of the themes that start to come out in Portrait of an Artist? Yeah, so there's a Christmas dinner scene in Portrait where Stephen's father and his father's friend get into an argument with Dante Reardon, who is in the house with them. And basically, Stephen and his father are the pro-nationalists and Dante is a pro-Catholic and she denounces Parnell. She said good that they, you know, denounced Parnell that the Catholic bishops did. And then there's this, again, this tension that Stephen sees when he's growing up. He sees members of the family arguing over two central tenets of Irish life, which are nationalism and religion at the time, especially Catholicism. And Mr. Casey, Stephen's father's friend, says we're a priest-ridden race. And so early enough in his life, Stephen is seeing how there is a battle for who can be nearly second in command in Irish society after British administration, whether it's nationalist politicians or if it's Catholicism. And Stephen certainly, you know, he goes to Catholic school and he goes to retreats, Catholic retreats. And by the time he's college going age, He's pretty sickened with religion in a lot of senses. And he speaks to his friend Davin. And Davin is the model young Irish man. He speaks Irish, he plays hurling, he's Catholic, nationalist. And Davin says to Stephen, why won't you be one of us? And he's really upset that Stephen seems so intent on walking away. You know, I, I often tell my students, Stephen Dedalus would love listening to The Cure if he were around today. He's a real navel gazer. And so Stephen says, you know, every time someone has made attempts to revitalize Irish nationalism or, you know, bring Irish culture forward, they've been thrown to the dogs. He said, if I were to, you want me to be one of you, I'd see you damned first. And he says, you know, you speak to me of nationalism or uh, religion, language. These are nets that are thrown at the soul of a man to keep him from flight. I shall attempt to fly by those nets. 
Now, it's interesting enough that he says fly by because we don't know if he means fly past or fly by using them. And when we think of Joyce, we always think of language <laughs> and religion. So there is a double meaning there, which is very typical of Joyce, but it's very much this idea of wrestling with who you want to be and who your society will let you be is essentially what Portrait of the Artist is about. Interesting. So it seems like where Dubliners was trying to bring Dublin out into current times, maybe Portrait of an Artist is taking a look at Ireland as a whole and in kind of yeah. a bigger perspective. And it's like we're, we're subservient to the British, unfortunately, as you mentioned, they're kind of like number one, but the fight for number two. And is it the Catholic Church out of Rome or is it the nationalists in exactly. Ireland who stand up for Ireland? In Ulysses, Stephen says, I'm the servant of two masters, one Italian and one English. So mm. he kind of, you know, brings this up again. And it's it's something that kind of haunts Stephen in a lot of ways throughout both novels. Wow, I've never quite thought of it like that, but that's uh, feeling like an occupied nation on two fronts. Absolutely. And as we're moving on then, and that was kind of portrait of an artist and uh, the germination of this as you put it, nationalist versus religion duality, which I think permeates a great deal of Ulysses as well, right? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Was yeah. that his next project after Portrait of an Artist, Ulysses? It was, or? so he's kind of working away on Ulysses in various guises from early enough, nearly as early as about 1912, if not earlier. But so he kind of does a little bit here and there. He also publishes a, a play called Exiles, in 1918, which doesn't come too much. There's an early German production of it, I think in 1923. And William Butler Yeats refuses to put it on in the Abbey. He just doesn't think it's particularly suited to what the Abbey do. And to be fair, it is very, again, European play. It's, you know, indebted to Ibsen and a lot of these uh, more continental experimental playwrights. Whereas, you know, a lot of what's going on at the Abbey is cultural propaganda in a lot of senses. But yeah, it's really Ulysses that's occupying most of his time. And Ulysses is an 18 chapter book that takes place in one day, which is the 16th of June, 1904, which is famously the day that Joyce went on his first date with his wife, Nora Barnacle. A lot of the idea is that highbrow literature had a certain reputation and Joyce wants to look at just the everyday, that there is art in the everyday. Uh, he said in letters to his brother, he wanted to transform the daily bread of everyday life into something with a permanent artistic life of its own. And a lot of this idea is, you know, in the novel, very little is not relatable. It's about Mantle Leopold Bloom. He gets up, he has, you know, he has breakfast, he laughs, he avoids people, he gets embarrassed. Everything there is relatable. It's just a human being's day on earth. But it's also worth noting that Joyce said he had put so many enigmas and puzzles in it that it would keep the scholars arguing for centuries, which was the only way to preserve his immortality, you know? So throughout the novel, there are some wildly experimental sections. Um, there's a scene in the novel where it's set in a maternity hospital and Joyce writes it, mimicking the development of English prose literature, the Augustinian period into the kind of more uh, Victorian. It's, it's amazing. And it's following the gestation of 
the children in the maternity hospital, but also of the English language in a lot of ways. Um, there's also a section which is obviously the most famous chapter, possibly is the Molly Bloom chapter, which is the final chapter. And it's about Leopold Bloom's wife and her inner thoughts. And it's eight full stops over, obviously, depending on the edition you have, but about 60 pages sometimes. And it just runs through in this inner monologue because obviously you don't stop or start thinking. You just keep going. And that was also what was seen as kind of some of the more famous examples in his novel. Now, the novel was serialized in the Little Review periodical from about 1918 to about 1920. But there were some passages deemed obscene. Um, and that halted the uh, serialization. Joyce famously said, if, if Ulysses isn't fit to read, then life isn't fit to live. You know, he, wow. I haven't put anything in here that nobody else has done. It's just I'm writing about the minutia of every day kind of thing. I'm stuck with somebody at this point that must be pretty established in their career as a writer to be able to take such big uh, experimental leaps with such confidence. Is that? Yeah, so he's... Uh, he has a publisher now lined up, Sylvia Beach. It, it sound, it's funny hearing her interviews. He sounds fairly self-assured in a lot of ways. He, she said he was sitting in Shakespeare & Co., the famous bookshop in Paris where Hemingway used to sleep. And he sits there with his head in his hands about the halting serialization. And he says, no one's going to publish my book. And then she said, do you want me to? And he just, without batting an eye, says yes. So he's obviously mm. kind of inching towards her to offer that. And he has a lot of friends, you know, Ezra Pound, Wyndham Lewis are providing him with packages of money. Oftentimes he does spend them in one go on the, um, the first night on a lavish dinner with the writers. Um, and oftentimes his wife, Nora Barnacle, sometimes has to sell clothes just to feed the children kind of thing. So he does have a um, confidence about him for sure. You know, as early as writing Dubliners, uh, when a publisher was refusing to publish the collection, he said, I do not doubt that you will severely retard the course of civilization in Ireland if you do not publish my book. And there's another story, whether apocryphal or not, about hearing that uh, reference to the king in Dubliners was going to cause it to be banned. Joyce allegedly wrote to the king to check if it, this was true. And he allegedly got a reply from a secretary that said it's not customary for the, the region of England or the king of England to respond and to such matters. So absolutely, there's a, an establishment in himself and a confidence, I think, in writing this and not really wanting to budge for a lot of people. Right. Compromising his artistic vision. That's what I was starting to get listening to you is that maybe it was a more of an inner confidence and a refusal to compromise on what he wanted to do rather than uh, my, my first assumption is maybe that he was more established as a writer and, and, and recognized externally. But it sounds like he was still struggling along at that point. Yeah. And uh, bear in mind, he, he was very meticulous in his writing. He wasn't churning out any old drivel and claiming it was great. You know, there's a another story where his friend Frank Budgeon came to visit. Again, you have to take a lot of these with a pinch of salt because especially with Joyce and Dublin, everyone knew him all of a sudden. It was fashionable to know him. But Frank Budgeon said, how did the writing go today, Jim? And James said, really well. I wrote two sentences. 
And he said, you only wrote two sentences. He said, well, I actually wrote them yesterday, but today I decided on the final order of the word. So whether it's true or not, it does indicate the, the meticulous attention to detail that he was really thinking about everything he put in. Is there um, much known about his writing style or his brainstorming or how he came to, to write these books? And, and Yeah, so there's, funny enough, there's a new enough museum that opened up in Dublin probably about two years now called Molly, which is named after um, Leopold Bloom's wife, but also it's Museum of Literature Ireland. And they have a lot of the manuscripts and you can see him scribbling out so much with red marker and adding in things that sometimes they look like fairly trivial things. It could be the colour of someone's garment. But again, he's putting in a lot of thought into them, bearing in mind the structure of Ulysses is loosely based on Homer's Odyssey. And so he's putting parallels into 1904 Dublin from ancient Greek myths. So he's really thinking about it. And sometimes, you know, he kind of thinks he makes mistakes and he goes back and he changes it. He sends a letter back to his aunt Josephine asking her. So I say sends back a letter. It's worth noting he's writing all of this from Paris, Pola, Trieste, Zurich. He's moving around the continent. He rarely returns home to Dublin. But he sends a letter back to his Aunt Josephine and says, would it be possible for someone of average height and build to drop themselves down the area railings of number seven Eccles Street without getting hurt? That's because he writes it into his novel. Leopold Bloom forgets his keys and has to do that. And so he is really checking. He wants to make sure no one's going to kind of call him out on anything wrong. And he brings with him a book called Tom's Directory, which is this huge tome of all the addresses of businesses in Dublin at the time, in 1904. So he can say, okay, I know that there was a business operating at this address in 1904, so I can't feasibly put a character living at that address. So he's really meticulous. To answer your question, there is a certain process of going back. He's allegedly making edits right up to the publication of UC mm. 1922. I love this idea that he he's uh, living across in the continent but he took basically the phone book with him to keep on top of things. As I said, a handful of times, one of which is 1909 to open Dublin's first cinema, which is the Volta cinema. Um, now he kind of undershoots or kind of maybe overestimates the Dublin population's interest in foreign film. Uh, and it doesn't really do particularly well. In fact, it goes under, but, it's just interesting that someone we associate with literature opens Dublin's first cinema. You know, it seems like a nearly a, something right. he himself had a business doing. So let's see here. What Were there other early in, major influences? I get Parnell was a major influence and he had um, maybe not influences, but supporters like Pound, Ezra Pound that were supporting him. Yeah, absolutely. So um, he is, he does nearly, you know, appreciate some of, the authors in Dublin at the time, he meets Yeats again, whether it's true or not, and they have a brief discussion on artistic vision. And he's, if to be, if it's to be believed, he's less than complimentary about Yeats. He says, I, I have met you too late. You're too old for me to have any influence on you. Bearing in mind, Yeats is like 38 at this point. So Joyce is being a, an absolute savage young critic. But um, he is quite interested, as I mentioned, in the more continental writers. So Henry Gibson is a huge influence. In fact, Joyce was a fan of uh, Ibsen's a doll house, the Doll's House play about a character called Nora, who 
leaves uh, her family at the end and he was quite taken by Nora Barnacle, his future wife, because she had the same name as one of his literary you know, heroes. And he allegedly taught himself Danish to be able to speak to Hen- uh, to send Henrik Ibsen a letter uh, and to read the translations or to avoid reading the translations. Uh, so he has quite a wide array of influences. He is often there's a library in Dublin called Marsh's Library, which has been there since the 1600s. And they have a roster of who came in and what they read. And Joyce is in there reading heresy pamphlets published by the Catholic Church in the 1500s kind of thing. So he has a very broad interest and he reads a lot of philosophy. So his interest in kind of more parochial or Dublin-centric literature isn't always as important as his more wide-ranging influences. A lot of French writers as well, Zola kind of things, he would be interested by those. So he studies uh, Italian and French in university. He was able to read Sanskrit as well, apparently. Um, There are various estimates I've seen between 12 and 17. Wow. um, With varying levels of fluency, obviously, and Irish, of course. (laughs) Right. Wow. Okay, so Ulysses comes together. Yeah. And that sounds like something took a while to work on while he was doing some other things, worked on the play. and Definitely. It's also physically taxing on him. His eyesight is quite bad. He had a number of surgeries on his eyes, um, and he's just quite jaded by the end of the publication of Ulysses. So it's published in February 1922 on his 40th birthday. He says in a letter to his patron, Harriet uh, Shaw, that he, it's, a, it's about a year later that he sends her a letter and he says, I wrote the first you know, piece of writing since the publication of Ulysses. But at this point, his eyesight has gotten so bad, he's having to write it out in red crayon on a huge piece of paper just so he can see what he's writing. And he often has to wear a, a white surgical gown and stand by the window just to let the light bounce off the gown and onto the page um, because his eyesight has gotten so bad. He names his daughter Lucia after the patron saint of light. So as well as, you know, mentally draining, physically, it's getting quite bad for his eyesight. And obviously, as he moves into writing his final work, Finnegan's Wake, he's having to move around then because of obviously the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, He gets a secretary for a while um, who writes down a lot of what Joyce dictates and will later become Finnegan's Wake. The secretary briefly dates Joyce's daughter, Lucia, but it becomes quite apparent that he's more interested in the writing, and that is because he was a young Samuel Beckett. So Samuel Beckett was Joyce's secretary for a while, and then on one occasion, for example, Beckett was stabbed in Paris, and Joyce paid for a very good room in the hospital to look after him. And a lot of Beckett's work then is kind of influenced by Joyce. You know, Beckett says, Joyce was a synthesizer. He put everything in. I'm an analyzer. I take everything out. Mm. Wow. I don't know if this uh, holds much water, but I've heard Ulysses compared. It's it's a typical day in Dublin. Yeah. And, and the contrast that I heard is that that's the day book and Finnegan's Wade is like the night book, the dream book. And it struck me losing his sight around this time and that he's starting to write a, a night book, a dream book. 
Yeah, definitely. The, so that's definitely one of the, and it is it is quite nice to think of them in companion pieces, I think, in that sense. Finnegan's Wake is also where a lot of critics would say that Joyce becomes bored with the English language. He's done everything he can do in Ulysses with mm. English, and by Finnegan's Wake, he's making his own. And in a lot of senses, it's true. If you read Finnegan's Wake, he, he has words that he calls portmanteau, portmanteau words. So he just crams two words together to make a new word. So uh, instead of absent-minded, he says absent-minded because he was a fan of absinthe drink. Oh. He also had laugh tears, which I often think of that crying, laughing emoji that people often use. You know, that's choice was a kind of precursor to that. So he's cramming together a lot of the um, language and he has what's called thunder words in Finnegan's Way. Mm-hmm. And they're often these words that are made up of, so it's meant to sound like thunder and they're made up of various different languages and they're words for thunder. And there's this huge running theme of the Tower of Babel of all the languages put together. And he choices nearly reconstructing the Tower of Babel in these thunder words cramming together all these languages again. And he really, you know, exhausts himself and the novel form generally in that book. That's, I, I've never quite heard the, the melding of various languages and, and like going back to the Tower of Babel and uh, almost like recreating history in a way. Yeah, definitely. So uh, it's that whole book is really Joyce's playing with language and he does say allegedly after that his next book after Finnegan's Wake was just going to be a short simple book obviously we never got to see it because he dies in 1941 after a tumultuous moving period also his daughter Lucia is in and out of uh, mental asylums Mm. so he spends a lot of money on getting her the best possible care and he dies in Zurich in 1941 so he never gets to kind of produce that final or that next book I should say how old was he? 58. 58. So pretty young. Yeah, absolutely. People often assume that he was a Nobel Prize winner, but never was. When do you say he was really, truly recognized? It's hard to know because he was so unfashionable in Ireland for so long. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, there were some trials over people said that they were slandered in Ulysses because so much of it is real people. You know, there are real Dublin characters in the book um, in 1954, I think the BBC broadcast uh, a radio version of Ulysses and a member of the Dublin public got in contact and said, this is slanderous. That's my family member you're talking about. And so it bred a lot of controversy. Also bear in mind, Ulysses was banned in the States for obscenity until 1933. Uh, actually, it's unbanned around the same time as prohibition is revealed. So there's certainly a, a loosening of restrictions there, a, a pretty similar time. But again, it's kind of unfashionable to, to like Joyce. He's often seen as the one who wrote the dirty book. Very little is done about, you know, commemorating him, unless it's kind of smaller private events, like 1954 seen, sees the first Bloomsday which is the celebration of the day that Joyce sets Ulysses. And it was uh, carried out by a group of Irish writers, Patrick Kavanagh, Flann O'Brien, Anthony Cronin, and Joyce's cousin, Tom Joyce, and 
who was a dentist, and AJ Leventhal, who was a critic. And they just went around Dublin, kind of semi-followed the route of the novel and also stopped in most Dublin pubs throughout the day. There's some pretty harrowing footage on YouTube of all the writers and they can barely stand straight. Like, you know what I mean? It's a half literary pilgrimage, half something else entirely. So certainly um, a lot of American critics are really influential in kind of bringing Joyce into a more recognizable space. You know, uh, Richard Ellman, Hugh Kenner, huge amount of American scholarship really brings it up. And then, you know, it permeates everywhere. Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes got married on Bloomsday as a tribute mm-hmm. to Joyce, you know. Would you say most of the recognition then came posthumously? Yes. His grandson, who was um, who had the estate, was, and understandably often, just a little suspicious about where it was coming from when people wanted to commemorate him. Was it to commemorate him or was it simply for profit? You know, so um, it was often quite difficult in Dublin and Ireland generally to kind of work on or talk about or commemorate Joyce for a long time. It kind of opened up entirely then and you see annual Bloomsday celebrations then. We've been studying a few people that I would say are ahead of their time. It sounds like this is another one of those people that just doesn't so far ahead that they don't quite get the recognition they deserve during their lifetime. Yeah. As I understand it, having not necessarily the background to put this in perspective, but that Joyce really changed how literature was done, that there was an objective narrator prior to Joyce and that Joyce kind of created this uh, multidimensional, if you might say, uh, multi-perspective view uh, on things, yeah. subnext, subjective nature of reality. Is that-, that was the thing Joyce was quite interested in as well, is the idea of different views and the idea of parallax, you know, seeing one thing from a different perspective. And in Ulysses, a character will see a, a cloud and later on a different character will see the same cloud. You know, it's this idea of how people see different things. And mm. Joyce often also complicates things we see as inherently true. So especially, you know, 1900s, most novels were an omniscient narrator or a first person narrator. And the opening sentence of his famous short story, The Dead, is Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. Now, Joyce wouldn't be the famous author he is if he was misusing the word literally. Lily is much more likely to misuse the word literally than James Joyce celebrated author will be. And he does that in Portrait of the Artist as well. Sometimes the words in the narration just don't sound like something an impartial reader would say. It's something Stephen, the snotty undergrad would say, you know. Um, So he's certainly interested and he explodes it in a lot of ways. And, you know, a lot of writers, Irish writers have since said in Ireland, if you're a writer, you're confronted with ignoring Joyce or tackling him head on and kind of folding it into your own work in some sense, but it's hard, you know, to do anything but one or the other. Mm, No middle ground there. Yeah. Moving back to Finnegan's Wigs, we've got a man here that knows 12 to 17 languages. And and we mentioned that the Tower of Babel and the the Thunder Words, and I'm not sure what my question is, but it, it seems like that depth of or variety of languages is going to really play into uh, 
how he manipulated language with with Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, and that, there's an immense musicality to his work as well, and he folds that in with the language. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. like, Ulysses has French, it has Italian, it has German, has Irish, and then it also has songs. Like Joyce was a, a very musical person, and he heard the musical aspect of language and especially different languages and folding them in to one another. He, you know, uh, performed at a music festival in Cork in 1904 and won a bronze medal for his singing. Uh, allegedly gave it back because he thought he deserved gold. But uh, so he, he's always conscious in what he's doing and how everything meshes together and especially that sound which is why there are so many recordings of Ulysses. People say it's just as good to listen to on tape as it is to read because he puts things together so well. There's a section in the third chapter of Ulysses where Stephen is walking on a beach and all the words have crackling sounds because he's walking on the seashells. So he's just meticulous in how he's crafting his language. Brings all the textures into it. Was music part of his life growing up? Definitely. He used to attend an open house. So it was every second and last Sunday of the month in a local politician's house. His name was David Sheehy. And he lived just around the corner from the Joyce's. And Joyce's mother used to bring James and his little brother Stanislaus there to sing, play games, charades, music and stuff like that. So yeah, throughout his whole life, it's kind of in the background and it's something he's certainly interested in. The Martello Tower, which is another Joyce museum, Beside the sea, uh, have Joyce's guitar uh, there that he used to play, and there's a great photos of Joyce actually playing the guitar as well. Did he have other musical instruments beside the guitar? Or? I believe there was a piano as well, which I think is in the Irish Writers Centre, which is okay. just beside the James Joyce Cultural Centre. All right. Has your uh, relationship with Joyce changed over the years? I am personally, I'm very. I'm very suspicious of adoring one individual idol. So for a long time, I was really interested in Joyce and then, and I still am, but I've I've certainly folded him into a wider interest in other writers and how he kind of ping pongs off other writers. Um, I still think, you know, hugely influential individual. Just, I think two years ago, there was a, a short story set in Argentina based off of the Arabi short story in Dubliners. And as I said, like, just because they're set in Dublin, the stories are pretty universal. And that's what's, I think, the best bit about Joyce is we get people in the Joyce Center who visit from all over, who some of them, for example, some visitors a few years ago came over from Hungary and they were able to recognize words in Hungarian from Ulysses that I wouldn't know. And they they kind of just shone an extra light. Um, or people from the States who come over all the time, often amazing kind of stories that come out because universities in the States have, and secondary schools or high schools, I should say, have a much better reputation for teaching Joyce than we do. We don't learn Mm -hmm. Joyce in secondary school. Uh, If you go to undergrad, you might um, come across Joyce, but it certainly doesn't cross our paths as much as it seems to for American readers. Wow, interesting. So I, that's my. That's what I like about it is that before I was interested in the local part of Joyce, recognizing the street names, going to them, visiting you know the house where Bloom lived, where the plaque is, 
And now I'm more interested in the universal aspect where I can hear what people from anywhere in the world can yield to me about their interest or what they've spotted in it, you know? I found this great quote off Wikipedia. For myself, I always write about Dublin because if I can get to the heart of Dublin, I can get to the heart of all the cities of the world. And the particular is contained the universal. Yes. And he said as well, when I die, Dublin will be written on my heart. You know, he, he, he may have spent most of his life then outside of Dublin. And oftentimes, you know, that complicated relationship, he loved it as long as he could be away from it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there is obviously that sentimentality for Dublin. I mean, he sets all his works there, you know. What would you say delights you about Joyce? He's funny. People don't give him credit. He, he's funny. Like when people mention Ulysses, they think of this tome of modernism, but there's fart jokes in it. <laughs> Do you know <laughs> what I mean? There, Leopold Bloom is thinking about Robert Emmett, a famous Irish patriot who was uh, martyred. And he's thinking of that famous Robert Emmett quote that says, not till my nation has taken its place among the countries of the earth, let my epitaph be writ. And Leopold Bloom's thinking about it and he just farts while he's thinking about it. And it's like Joyce writes the fart over the quote. So he's funny. Uh, he has witty jokes and slightly less witty jokes. He was, what's the word? He was uh, interested in scatology or scatologically interested he was interested in the toilet and the workings of toilet politics so to speak <laughs> so i think he, he's really funny throughout his works and even when, when sometimes it's satire and you mightn't get it because you know someone who's reading it in colorado or wherever has never been to a dublin pub and had to listen to someone sitting on a bar stool talking drivel for two hours but joyce wrote that into you know the cyclops episode of ulysses and that's the particular, and then you get the more kind of universal funny aspects. Right. Yeah. So if you found yourself in a pub with Joyce, what would you want to talk to him about or ask him? That's a lot. That's a good question. I've never been asked that in all my years of working in the Joyce. I don't know. One thing that's probably worth noting is there's a book called the Oxford um, Book of Literary Anecdotes, and Joyce is in it. It said that he was always interested in what you had to say, no matter who you were. So that's that's encouraging anyway, because oftentimes, you know, they said don't meet your heroes, but it does sound like Joyce would certainly sit down with his glass of Swiss white wine uh, and he would listen to what you had to say about anything and everything. Or he said you could tell a lot about a person's life philosophy by the way they eat an egg. So going back to what you said about the particular and the universal, I would be curious what, I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question now. You've stumped me. But I would certainly be curious to hear what his next book would have been. I think um, I would love to have known how he would go from that huge Finnegan's Wake and, you know, were because bear in mind, Finnegan's Wake alienated a lot of his supporters, including his brother, including other people like Ezra Pound. They thought it was kind of, he was kind of past it. And Samuel Beckett uh, and a few other authors wrote a defense. It was like nearly a pamphlet. It was a defense of what he was working on. So I would be curious to see how he would get down from that, you know, that intense yeah. headspace to make up your own language. How would he transition into this small, simple book? And right. yeah, that's what I'd ask, I think. Yeah, that uh, where is, after Finnegan's Wake, where do we go from there? Right? Yeah, what's left? Um, I could see maybe bringing it down to something small and simple just to 
to kind of yeah. bring yourself back down to earth and then what next and I, i'm struck by what you said earlier just uh a man that seems genuinely curious about life and about people and just you know yeah. loved it wants to get to know everybody because he's you know fitting that into his worldview of of being able to look at all these different perspectives and we talked we touched into the political and the religious i guess here and there but did he you know there's the, the the love of parnell and wanting to kind of carry forward with that i think and and maybe break free of the the church did he have um fairly strong well-developed views on these things that he continued to promote outside of his books or religion like he saw he wouldn't have been an activist now or anything or he wouldn't you know kind of speak about it too much like he was interested in things you know there's a story with nora where he was talking about the rise of fascism and not in any i appreciate it or i don't but just commenting on it like it's in the news and nora said if you speak one more time about that hitler man kind of thing uh so he was just always aware and he was always trying to keep abreast of topics um and certainly when he died uh nora was asked if she wanted a religious ceremony for the funeral and she said i couldn't do that to poor jim you know so he did keep that distrust of the institution of Catholicism, certainly, and the practice and its kind of pervasive tentacles in all aspects of daily life in Ireland. And the, the political thing, the nationalism thing is more, again, he just, he didn't see the point in going in circles, especially, as I said, when he was looking across and he saw amazing work in art, literature, music being done around the world. And Ireland to him seemed to just be going in circles. And mm. you had great thinkers like Yeats and Lady Gregory, and all they were doing was rehashing old Irish myths. So I think he's certainly just a little frustrated rather than ever peddling his own political interests. You know, he's open minded. You know, in the novel, Leopold Bloom says, I'm talking about love, the opposite of hatred. Love loves to love love. And that's a quote we often see on postcards everywhere and it does resonate with that just just go at it kind of thing you know right i i, I get the impression of just somebody that's that's observing human nature whether it's the common man at the bar stool next to him or the political landscape of continental europe or and, yeah. and just kind of observing it all and taking it in and a little frustrated with the stagnation of politics, but mostly seems to be expressing himself through his his writing and definitely yeah, through that. And you know, he meets a lot of various people throughout his career. Like he's, as I said, he's so open to meeting anyone and everyone. And you know, he famously meets Hemingway quite a bit. Joyce would insult someone in a bar, and then he would say, "Deal with him, Hemingway," and let the slightly less scrawny individual step forward. Or, you know, he meets F. Scott Fitzgerald and Scott Fitzgerald says, can I kiss the hand that wrote Ulysses? And Joyce says, it's done a lot of other things as well. So, you know, so, I mean, he, he's just, he, it kind of water off a duck's back for him. You know, he doesn't, nothing kind of seems to dig in. Mm, keeps it humble as well. Yeah, certainly. Great. Well, Loic, I really thank you for your time here. Absolutely. Happy to take part in the outreach and help share the word about Joyce. It was great. I learned a lot. Hopefully we'll see you in Dublin next June for Bloomsday. Sounds great.
That concludes our episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Loic Wright for taking the time to talk with us. You can find Loic on Twitter at Duffels1. Thank you to Christina Pearson and Richard Rossa of Hilaritas Press. And thank you to producer Ryan Reeves for putting it all together. With this, the conclusion of our eight-part series, we will open up our format with our next episode with Antero Ollie, releasing on the 23rd of May. Until then, I am your host, Mike Gathers, signing off with love and cheerfulness. Amor y hilaritas. Great day. <laughs> 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 <laughs>